Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where normally we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. But once a month, we watch a horror-adjacent film voted on by our patrons. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How you doing today, Sarah? Keeping on, keeping on. Yeah, you've had a long week. Long week, long month long life. <laughs> uh, how are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah. I kind of chose my eating schedule poorly today, but other than that, I'm doing fine. Well, that's good. I think we have a really good episode for everyone today. Um, as Ben said, it is an horror-adjacent bonus episode, and we have our patrons vote on them every month. If you want to get in on that, you can head to patreon.com slash Podcast to vote for next month's movie. Uh, but Ben, what are we watching tonight? Tonight, Sarah, we are watching Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man uh, from 1951, directed by Charles Lamont. Have we seen something from Lamont before? His name's very familiar. Um, I don't think so, but he was a sort of low-budget contract director for Universal through the 1940s. So perhaps, but... Um, Maybe his name popped up here or there. Yeah. Um, no titles, like when I was just briefly looking at his filmography, stuck out to me, so... Okay. So this is kind of like a continuation from our very first horror-adjacent bonus episode, which was Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And that movie had been like a big hit in 1948, and it kind of ended with this like tease of The Invisible Man. Yeah, I think that's the last time we saw him or heard him, I guess. Yeah, Um, and it was Vincent Price's voice. And of course, he had played The Invisible Man in the sequel. Yes. One of the sequels anyway. Why don't you refresh our memory vis-a-vis The Invisible Man? I feel like it's been a long time. It has. Uh, well, it all started with H.G. Wells's novel uh, from 1897, The Invisible Man. In that novel, I'll just briefly touch on what the plot is to kind of be a baseline for how the story changes from Universal. Sure. So in the novel, Griffin is researching how to change the body's refractive index, basically how light interacts with the physical body. And he tests a procedure on himself. Uh, He becomes invisible, but he cannot reverse it. So he's trying to reverse it, but he begins to kind of, he was already a jerk, but he's kind of going more jerk because you know, no consequences, which leads to random violence and kind of devolves from there. Uh, When it was adapted by Universal Pictures uh, in 1933, they chose James Whale to be the director. Now, we covered the 33 Invisible Man in episode 43, and it is currently ranked at number 13. Wow. It's a good movie. Yeah. Claude Rains is our Invisible Man, and the film begins with him already invisible, and we learn that uh, he had a similar goal with his experiments as the novel Griffin. Um, However, the method for Claude Rains' 
Griffin is uh, through like a chemical mixture that he like ingests, like a potion, mm. scientific potion. And it succeeds, but he can't turn back. And further, those chemicals are slowly driving him mad. Yes. So he begins to be like a bit of a prankster. And then it becomes to be a little bit more like sinister with some random acts of violence to murder to terrorism. Yeah, so like a little bit of the onus of responsibility is off of him compared to the novel, I feel like. Yes, but he did choose ingredients that were known to cause insanity, (laughs) so... Sure, sure, yeah. So this invisible man is finally caught um, by the police following footprints in snow, and he, in being caught, he is um, mortally wounded, and as he dies is when he turns visible again now notably you know james whale is the director he had just done uh 1931's frankenstein and the 1932's old dark house before coming onto that invisible man and then he followed that up with bride of frankenstein in 1935 and we're riding high on the horror train and then in 1936 horror died but it was reborn with 1939's son of frankenstein so Universal's like, oh, sweet, we can leverage our properties again. Great. Son of Frankenstein did well. Fantastic. The Invisible Man returns in 1940. This is directed by Joe May. And notably, we have a co-writer, uh, Kurt Siedmak. Mm-hmm. Now, we covered this movie in episode 72, and it is currently ranked at number 166. That's like middle of the list territory these days isn't it yeah these days yeah so you know it's not bad uh-huh. vincent price stars as jeffrey radcliffe who is in jail for murdering his brother despite his claims of being innocent uh dr frank griffin who is the brother of the original invisible man uh is persuaded to give radcliffe the invisibility serum so that he can escape and then track down the real killer Uh, But will he do it in time before the serum drives him mad? Right. In this one, so the rightful killer is found and brought to justice. And this uh, invisible man, Jeffrey Radcliffe, returns to visibility through blood transfusion. Because he's like mortally wounded. And everyone loved Jeffrey Radcliffe. So everyone's like, I'll give my blood. I'll give my blood. Mm. So through like that amount of a blood transfusion, he becomes visible again and then right. has a happy ending. Um, so that's 1940. Also in this time with the resurgence of horror, Universal is like, hmm, we have all of these properties. What if we tried to do something different so the mummy's hand which is more of an adventure version of the original horror movie and later in 1940 the invisible woman comes out which is a comedy uh it is directed by a edward sutherland and kurt siedmack also got to co-write this script He was also hired to develop the idea alongside two comedy writers. So while, you know, Kurt might have been like, yeah, it's going to be horror uh, with the involvement of those two writers, uh, as well as a comedic director, this movie was always going to be comedy. One of those um, writers uh, was Robert Lees, who co-wrote this film. Oh, sweet. Okay. Now, our uh, invisible woman in this movie is played by Margaret Sullivan, And her character is Kitty Carroll. She is fired as a department store model. 
and then becomes the test subject for an invisibility device. It goes well, and she just turns visible again, uh, just in time for the mob to get involved and steal the device, but they can't get it to work. So then they go and steal Kitty and the professor to be like, hey, make this thing work. Um, They can't get it to work, but Kitty discovers that alcohol restores her invisibility. So she drinks, becomes invisible. Hijinks ensue. Hijinks ensue. She eventually marries the professor. They have a kid. It's a whole thing. But that's the Invisible Woman, a comedy. And uh, we've never covered that on the show. That would have to wait for like a future horror adjacent episode, perhaps. Yes, yes. Uh, We have also just never seen it. A movie we have seen outside of the podcast is 1942's The Invisible Agent. So this is like two years after The Invisible Woman. They saw that, you know, Invisible Woman did well. So they're like, cool, let's try something a little bit different. And The Invisible Agent is a World War II spy thriller uh, directed by Edwin Marin and fully written by Kurt C. Mack. And it stars John Hall playing Frank Raymond Griffin, who is the grandson of the original Invisible Man. Um, and through the family, passed down has been the, uh, like, recipe. Serum? The serum. Well, like, the... the, the Formula. is Formula. I was like, what is the scientific Word recipe? Word for recipe. <laughs> um, so that's been handed down. Uh, now, some Axis agents come to Griffin to be like, give us the formula. And he's like, no, I'm a red-blooded American. And then the allies come to Griffin and they're like, give us the formula. And he's like, no, it's dangerous. And then after Pearl Harbor, he's like, okay, I'll give you the formula um, on one condition. It has to be me. So he takes the serum. He goes behind enemy lines, yada, yada, yada. Following that pattern Universal has set up for every two years as a visible product, um, 1944 has the return to horror with The Invisible Man's Revenge. So because it's horror, we covered it on the podcast. It was episode 119, and it is currently ranked at number 170. Mm. So lower than his return. Right. It's directed by Ford Beebe. John Carradine is in this one. He's not The Invisible Man. He is the mad scientist. And he injects Robert Griffin, who is played by John Hall, uh, who then uses his invisibility to take revenge on the Herrick family, who he believes stole his fortune. Um, but to be fair, they also did leave him to die. Mm. He, again, through blood transfusion, he becomes visible again, um, but only for a short period of time. So he is an antagonist. Like he, It's clear that he's like gone mad. He escapes from a mental asylum. And so the t- there's tension of like, he's invisible. Oh no. Oh, he's visible. But like, who is he going to kill to get the blood to turn back invisible? So that, that was that movie, you know, <laughs> not the worst, not the best. And then the last time, as I said, that we saw the invisible man was in the very first horror adjacent bonus episode, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein from 1948. I will say in the universal pictures, invisible franchise right there's this movie when abbott and costello meet the invisible man but then the last entry into this franchise is technically 2020's invisible man from director lee Whannell. yes which we haven't seen yet 
no just like not at all yeah but notably like like, that movie doesn't focus on the invisible man it focuses on his victim yes um that movie came out like right when covid started and so it was like right as they were closing the theaters and so we didn't get to see it and we just kind of haven't gotten around to it gotten back around to it since there's a lot of media so there's kind of like this loose relationship to continuity in these movies like Mm -hmm. invisible man returns is a roundabout sequel to the original film because he gets the formula from the original guy's brother and then invisible agent is kind of like several generations down the line but still has that connection whereas like invisible woman is a totally different thing yes and And they use a device rather than a serum right and then invisible man's revenge is basically like a reboot like the guy's name is still griffin but it's a new story and it's not related to any of the previous ones yes so there were plans for a fifth invisible man movie which i guess means what man returns agent revenge we're not counting woman okay i was trying to figure out how they got to five um there was plans for a fifth invisible man movie called the invisible man strikes back that movie basically wasn't made because we hit that point in the late 1940s when universal became universal international and they really stopped making horror movies for the most part um so it was kind of a victim of that Mm -hmm. and then you had abbott and costello meet frankenstein in 1948 which was kind of like a last hurrah for those characters and a good send-off as well Mm -hmm. but um that movie was like this massive hit and it actually revitalized abbott and costello's career which had been on like a bit of a downswing at that time partially due to like some health difficulties that costello had been going through as well as like There was a bit of a rift between the two men. Um, If you want to learn more about Abbott and Costello and who they were and their beginnings, their origins, you can take a listen to our Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein episode where we kind of go into all that. But after Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, like they were hot again. They were, you know, back on top. Uh, Not that they'd ever left. (laughs) And um, they signed a new contract with Universal that enabled them to appear in films for other studios outside of their contract. So they had to appear in like a certain number of Universal movies every year, but they could go off and do other projects if they wanted to. They made three films in 1948, two of which were for Universal. Uh, They made two films in 1949, one of which was for Universal. And then they only made a single film uh, at Universal in 1950. 1949, the one Universal film they made had been Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff. Yes. uh, A horror comedy that saw the duo kind of teamed up against the most notable member of like the classic Universal horror lineup who did not appear in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. But in 1949, Costello suffered from a second bout of rheumatic fever, which limited their output. Um, They ended their radio show on ABC in 1949, um, but they did start appearing on television on NBC in 1951 on the Colgate Comedy Hour. They made two films for Universal in 1951, one of which was Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, which had been teased at the end of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. For this film, they brought that Invisible Man Strikes Back script kind of like out of mothballs (laughs) and they kind of dusted it off and they rewrote it to be a comedy with Abbott and Costello in it. However, there is no continuity 
between Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, despite the teasing of the Invisible Man coming next at the end of that movie, which is something that drove child ban insane. But is there ever any continuity between their movies? Very rarely. I think there's like maybe one or two times where they actually made a legitimate sequel to one of their films. But for the most part, it's they're always different characters every time. Characters who are just them in different clothes. Um, (laughs) uh, This time, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello play Bud Alexander and Lou Francis. Um which is just their real first and middle names. Very funny. And rather than being um, like shipping company guys, like they were in the first movie, um, they are newly minted private detectives. Oh, love this. Fresh out of private detective school. Is that a thing? I don't think so. That campus better have some like cigarette machines, man. (laughs) Those vending machines. So um, the Invisible Man who appears in this film is not one who has appeared before, um, but rather it is a boxer who's on the run from the law for murder. Uh, He is played by Arthur Franz. And Franz was a character actor who frequently appeared in supporting roles in many films. However, there is a connection to the original Invisible Man continuity in that the um, inventor is said to be Griffin, uh, and they show a picture of Claude Rains. Okay. Yeah. Born in New Jersey in 1920, Arthur Franz caught the acting bug while he was in high school. He served in the Army Air Force in World War II and was shot down over Romania. And then he was um, imprisoned in a POW camp from which he escaped. Ooh. Yeah. Was invisibility involved? I don't think so. Okay. I think just like good old fashioned badassery, I guess. <laughs> Um, Some notable roles of his uh, include Sands of Iwo Jima, uh, where his character is the narrator. Invaders from Mars, where his character is the narrator. He's the, like, adult male astronomy guy, scientist. Um, He's also known for the Kane Mutiny. Um, He was in Back from the Dead, uh, which is the movie where the new wife is being possessed by the spirit of the old wife. Yeah. He's also in Monster on the Campus. He's the professor in that movie. Um, and he also had many television appearances before his retirement in 1982. And he passed away in 2006. The picture's female lead is Nancy Guild, who was born in LA in 1925. She was discovered by a fashion photographer for life magazine, uh, while at university signing with 20th century Fox after she was discovered. However, after four years at Fox, she felt that her career wasn't taking off the way she felt it should, so she left her contract. She also divorced her first husband, Fox contract player Charles Russell. Oh. So just making like a clean break with everything Fox in 1950. Uh, In 1951, she appeared in this film, and she married Broadway producer Ernest H. Martin. Her career basically stalled out. In the mid-1950s, she divorced Martin in 1975, got remarried to a phonojournalist who she also divorced, and then passed away of emphysema in 1999. Okay. Another member of the cast who might be remembered by boomers in our audience is vaudevillian William Frawley, who's probably best remembered from either I Love Lucy or My Three Sons. My Three Sons. 
I got three sons. I'm so glad they came back. Uh, My boys. <laughs> Sarah, number one fan of a show that she has never seen <laughs> an inch of. Uh, but Frawley started performing in vaudeville with his wife, Edna, way back in 1914 at the age of 27. By 1951, he had appeared in over 100 movies, but his career was kind of winding down at his age, so he accepted the role of the landlord on I Love Lucy, uh, which was given to him on the condition that he clean up his alcoholism, which he was kind of known for being like a drunk and really irritable on set. Um, So he did. Nice. I Love Lucy ran for nine years, after which Frawley played the grandfather on My Three Sons, starting in 1960 until his death in 1966. So Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man was written and directed by, like, basically Abbott and Costello's regular team at Universal at this time. Uh, Charles Lamont was a contract director at Universal doing lower-budget films throughout the 1940s, and he had been assigned to Abbott and Costello beginning in 1950, and he would direct the duo until the team broke up in the mid-1950s. When he was assigned the Abbott and Costello team, he was reluctant to accept it because he felt he would never become, like, a prestigious director doing Abbott and Costello films, and then he realized that, like, it was like guaranteed box office hits basically yeah Um, guaranteed work as well yeah uh so you know he embraced it as i mentioned earlier one of the writers on this picture is robert lees uh, a horror comedy veteran he wrote or co-wrote rather the invisible woman he also worked on the 1940 version of the black cat which was a horror comedy um he also wrote hold that ghost an abbott and costello horror comedy from the mid 40s and he also wrote on abbott and costello meet frankenstein so he's kind of like a regular guy for them um the other main writer on this film is john grant and he was basically abbott and costello's top jokes writer going way back to the duo's beginning in the mid 1930s um basically he would write the material for abbott and costello that would be inserted into the stories written by other people so you kind of wrote a screenplay and then he would come in and write their jokes in 1951 the year that this movie was made uh costello got kind of swept up in the red scare he became really paranoid. So he demanded his team swear oaths that they had never been communists. Uh Uh-oh. This led to Robert Lee's getting put on the Hollywood blacklist while Grant actually like refused to sign. And so Costello fired Grant, um, but Abbott and Costello rehired him a year later when they felt that their 1952 film Lost in Alaska had suffered as a result. Yeah. Because this was their head joke writer. This was the guy, right? Um, Communists be funny, guys. Come on. He was... Now, there's no evidence that John Grant was a communist, just that he refused to go along with Costello's tomfoolery. But... um, Oh, sorry. Let me rephrase. People with backbones are funny, guys. (laughs) But yeah, he was generally considered to be, like, integral. Like, it was really a trio, just the other guy didn't perform. When the Abbott and Costello team broke up in 1955... Who got uh, custody? Grant had a heart attack and died. Oh, no. No one got custody. Yeah. God got custody. Oh, boy. Um, Robert Lees, meanwhile, um, worked under pseudonyms in the blacklist. Um, He later got involved in, like, atheist and humanist activism activities. 
Um, and then he was brutally murdered in 2004 at age 91 by a homeless man on meth who was on a killing spree. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not going to go into details on the podcast. Yeah, don't. But uh, We're, We are not a true crime podcast. The special effects for Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man uh, were handled by Stanley Horsley, who had worked on... Invisible Man Returns, Invisible Woman, and Invisible Agent. In all of the Invisible Man movies, special effects are praised. Yes. Even Invisible Woman. The creator of the Invisible Man effects was John Fulton, uh, who did them for the original movie and also for Returns, Invisible Woman, and Invisible Agent. And Horsley had kind of worked under him on those three pictures. Um, By this point, I believe Fulton had left Universal for Paramount and was now like the special effects guy there. So Horsley's the one kind of in charge this time around. Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man was released on March 14th, 1951, and it made $1.5 million against a budget of $627,000. Damn. Most of which was probably Costello and Abbott's like salaries. Yeah. Wow. Uh, It is widely available on a variety of either Abbott and Costello or Universal Monsters box sets like Complete Invisible Man. It's there. Complete Universal Monsters. It's there. Complete Abbott and Costello. It's there. It's it's widely available. Um, You can rent it online on iTunes or on the Microsoft video store. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you find a copy to watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man from 1951, directed by Charles Lamont. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man from 1951, directed by Charles Lamont. Ben, what did you think? I think this is fine. It's fine. It's uh, like an afternoon's entertainment. Yeah, I would say it's probably not the best Abbott and Costello movie I've no. seen. And I would say it's also not the best... Um, horror comedy movie we've seen no it's it's fine it's fine like it's not the worst Abbott Costello movie correct um it's very much of like the era of you know movie as disposable entertainment yeah it accomplishes what it set out to do yeah it's a fun time for when you're watching it yeah let me tell the folks at home what goes on sure So we see Lou and Bud, they are freshly minted private investigators, and they have their first case walk in the door. Uh, The case is about Tommy Nelson. He is a boxer who is accused of beating his manager to death for not throwing a fight with, with this boxer named Rocky. Now, Tommy hires Lou and Bud to basically help him find the real killer so he can kind of clear his name and to be hiding from the cops because he escaped from jail to do this. Tommy goes to his girlfriend and her uncle who uh, was bequeathed the formula for invisibility from the original Griffin. 
Now the uncle is like, I don't want to give it to you because I don't have a cure for the insanity thing. And Tommy doesn't give a fuck. He takes it anyways. Um, So we're trying to find the killer before he goes insane. And Tommy is pretty sure that the people who killed his manager were um, the people behind, like pulling the strings for him to throw the fight in the first place. So Tommy's like, cool, we'll go down to the gym. Lou uh, will pretend to be a boxer, Bud, his manager, and we will, you know, make a big fuss about what a great boxer Lou is. He'll end up having to fight Rocky. They'll ask us to throw the fight. We won't. So they'll come after Bud. And in that moment, we'll be able to catch them in the act of trying to kill someone and then be like, this was the same way they killed my manager. So that is what they go to do. Thanks to the help of the cops, they catch um, the people involved. And Tommy, like through the movie, is increasingly showing signs of insanity. It's all played for laughs, of course. There's no like actual horror here, Um, but just like grandiose plans of like tyranny and dictatorship. In the final confrontation, when they catch uh, the mob, basically, Tommy gets stabbed uh, while invisible. So they need to give him a blood transfusion. Lou goes and does that. And in the midst of that blood transfusion, Tommy's girlfriend's uncle gives him the, uh, like, serum to turn him back to being visible. Uh, And so he becomes visible again. Through that blood transfusion, there is a a little bit of a mix-up where, uh, for one last gag, Lou begins to turn invisible. And then slowly he returns to being visible, but somehow his legs are on backwards. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. The last five minutes are a bit of a mess, but it's fine. It, It does what it does, and that's the movie. It's the Invisible Man Returns, but with boxing. Basically, the movie has essentially one really great idea. Mm-hmm. that the whole movie is based around which is that like the way that they put Lou over as being a good boxer is that like invisible Tommy is boxing for him yes like so during the boxing match for instance uh Tommy will kind of be in Lou's ear and be like right cross and then like you know Lou will fake doing that while Tommy actually does it to like really knock out Rocky and I think it's pretty clear that They knew that that gag was good and the rest of the movie is kind of just based around getting there. Yeah, and I will say, I think that the boxing scene is really interesting to watch because I was really impressed with how Rocky's actor is like taking the fake punches um, the, the stunt work is really fascinating in this movie. It's interesting because essentially what they're doing is they're doing just a normal Hollywood fight scene, but shooting it from angles where you can see that the punches are fake. Yeah. But uh, the other thing that's really neat about that is if you listen to our original Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein episode, Lou Costello in real life used to box. Mm-hmm. So before he went into vaudeville, um, he was a boxer. I've heard kind of two stories about why he quit boxing. One of them is that he won something like 38 straight bouts and then he lost and was injured and called it quits. The other is that like he was kind of boxing in secret and that when his parents found out he was boxing, they kind of like made him stop. Um, I like both those stories. Yeah. So 
you know, it's really, it's kind of funny because like the, the gag is supposed to be like, oh, you know, Lou, like he's short and he's tubby. Like it's kind of yeah, ridiculous that he would be a boxer. I didn't like those because Lou looks like a boxer to me in terms of being stocky. Right. And also they kept being like, oh, Lou, you're so like fat. Like why, how could you do things? And it's like, uh, mm. yes, he has weight. Um, but I don't know. It Maybe that's just a, a difference in what uh, media would portray as fat compared to nowadays. Sure. That's, that's potentially fair. I also think that jokes around like Lou being fat is like, kind of part and parcel of the Abbott and Costello thing. Like it's part of the gag. So I don't like, it doesn't bother me too much because they were doing this stuff for 20 years. And if these weren't the jokes he wanted to be telling, they wouldn't tell them kind of thing. I I think it's just a factor that uh, some of their comedy isn't for me. Sure. Particularly because it's supposed to be like a, a funny joke thing that Bud is mean and I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like Bud. Yeah. It's, Lou it's is tough. so nice and cute and like, I just want the best for him. He's just a puppy dog. And then Bud is so mean. Yeah. It's, it's tough if like, you don't like that kind of comedy, but it was a very, you know, traditional setup, right? Like I know the number of, comedy duos of this era that basically follow the same template is like, there's like five or six of them. I mean, this is R2D2 and C3PO, right? Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think, I think it just, it's kind of funny that the core joke here is that like Lou is too, you know, short and fat to be a boxer, but like Lou actually was a boxer. Yeah. And I think that means that like the boxing scene comes over even better yeah, because he actually knows what it should look like. So yes. he knows how to behave for it to be comedic because that's not what it's supposed to look like. Yes. You know, there's some stuff here that like kind of strains credulity. Um, sometimes the gags of like, oh, Invisible Tommy's doing this, but it's supposed to be Lou seem a little far-fetched because Lou's not even close to doing what Tommy is doing. Uh, but it's a comedy. Why? You know, don't get worried about it. There are some good one-off uh, comments that come out that are like the the quick-paced, uh, witty comebacks. Yeah. I really like it when they get to that point in their comedy. The best stuff for Abbott and Costello is the banter. Yes. Is the back-and-forth quick banter. And to be honest, um, that kind of let me down in this movie. Um, yeah. Th- outside of like the boxing scene and related gags, um, a lot of the rest of this movie is pretty rote. Um, it's kind of standard invisible man stuff. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the invisible man stuff is like, yeah, yeah. Okay. We've seen this kind of stuff before. There's some fun, like physical comedy gags with it. Um, and I mean, yeah, it makes sense to pull some of this invisible man stuff for, for comedy, but a lot of the movie's comedy is coming from slapstick. Yes. And like Evan Costello have always had slapstick as a element of their act. Um, And slapstick has always been popular and I'm actually not like a huge slapstick fan. I am much more a fan of like the witty banter. Yeah. And I feel like there wasn't, there's like a couple of good gags throughout, but there aren't any really good, like classic bits Mm -hmm. of it here. Um, They mostly are relying on the physical humor. So, you know, there's nothing like I, there wasn't anything I didn't enjoy, but 
it was just kind of very like paint by numbers, right? Very much so. Um, for me, it's ultimately not what I want in a meat movie mm. um, because that was captured best with when they meet Frankenstein. Yeah, like Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein is absolutely the better movie here. I will say that the special effects for the Invisible Man stuff are, you know, as good as ever, basically, yeah. like still top notch. There are reused shots from earlier Invisible Man films. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's only one scene in the movie where Tommy does the traditional Invisible Man, like wrapped up in bandages with the sunglasses look. And that's really because there's a scene where he's like, meet me in the foggy universal forest uh, and bring me this suitcase full of like the invisible man costume and I'll put it on. And then he like puts it on, says a few words to them and basically immediately takes it off and never wears it again. And that's because all of the scenes of him opening the suitcase, pulling the clothes out and putting them on are reused from, I think invisible man returns. Mm. Um, there's a shot where the scientist is demonstrating how the invisible formula works and he tests it on a guinea pig and the footage of the guinea pig turning invisible is reused from i think invisible woman so like some of the effect shots have been reused from other uh invisible man stuff but all the stuff that's like original to this movie is still very well done yeah and some of the new gags that they do about like moving someone who's invisible and stuff like that's well done and the floating objects that's well done just to kind of get across that, like, even though they've reused some of those shots, it doesn't mean that they uh, cut corners on other effects. Yeah, the new stuff is still good. And I think the Invisible Man lends itself as a concept really well to slapstick. So, yeah, it makes sense. You know, the stuff of like carrying an invisible body through a revolving door and things like that is funny. You can see how quickly it lends itself to comedy with how they quickly went into comedy with the invisible woman right right like it makes sense that comedy has kind of come in uh, even the original invisible man had comedy just for when the pranks yeah when griffin's just sort of in the prank phase of his of his descent into madness yeah yeah so like this is a fine movie um when they meet frankenstein it's better but this wasn't the worst yeah this is this is fun but it's definitely just kind of like disposable entertainment yeah. right uh not an all-time classic um but you know enjoyable for what it is yeah uh well folks if you enjoyed this bonus episode of ours uh stay tuned because may's bonus episode will be on zombies on broadway another horror comedy yes uh they're the easiest to kind of like do i think there's mm. like a lot more horror comedies um and i think it's easier to describe why it's horror adjacent rather than thriller right like the amount of like explaining we'd have to do for justifying jaws as a horror adjacent movie right Oof, or a lot well and then there's also like like i don't think that silence of the lambs is horror but a lot of people do and so there's a lot of talk about like what's the difference between horror and thriller and it's like it's a very subtle thing, which yeah. we usually try to like dig into when we get to a movie that's like that. But in any case, Zombies on Broadway will be the next one. And if you would like to have a hand in choosing our future horror-adjacent movies, you can head to patreon.com slash Podcast and become a patron of the night for as low as a dollar a month. 
Uh, well, Ben, what are we going to be watching when we get back to our regularly scheduled programming? Uh, we'll be watching Hammer Horror film The Man Who Could Cheat Death. Ah. So do you think this will be like a death with like a scythe and like a, a black cloak? Like, nah, nah. No? It's an adaptation of Man in Half Moon Street, which we've seen before. Yes. So we pretty much know what's coming here, but it's from, you know, Terrence Fisher and the rest of the Hammer Horror gang. Okay, so it'll be a step above then. Yeah. <laughs> well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.